Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach you as our Father. As a God who not only is above us and rules and reigns as King, but who we can approach anytime, in the middle of the night, with with anything we need. You, You truly are a good God who is good to us. Lord, we we echo the psalmist's words from Psalm 119 that you are good and you do good. And we thank you that you do good to us. Lord, we want to pray for us as a church and for those among us as well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us, um, as a church, a a willing flexibility. Lord, as we saw last week in the book of Daniel, the, the one thing that is certain in life is change. There will be a generation of believers and even some in the past who, who never died, but that change in life and in the church is inevitable, even if difficult, and that you are still good through all of it. Lord, we want to be faithful to that which must not change in the church and flexible with that which, which must. Lord, we want to pray for our search that has begun for a part-time Worship leader, musical worship leader, Father, we pray that you would bring success to that endeavor, that you would bring uh, the right man to us who is able to serve us in that capacity. Lord, I continue to pray that you would, um, that, that you would allow that to become a full-time position and that we might be served that way. Lord, I pray that we as a church, as we begin this search, would have an understanding that we are not uh, looking for someone to come do what we are unwilling to do but we are looking for someone to, um, to come and lead us to be effective in the ministry that you have called us to. Lord, even as we look here at the book of Daniel and of, of uh, the, the captivity and the exile of the nation of Judah, many of the people there simply uh, hung up their harps, as we read about in Psalms, and, and said, we can't worship anymore. We can't worship here, we can't worship in this place, we can't worship in this way, we can't worship under these circumstances. And Lord, uh, maybe some of us, whether it be in in COVID or uh, in the service of the church, have just hung up our harps. And you call us to to worship, to serve. Um, Lord, let us understand that whatever is going on in the world around us, uh, wherever we are, whatever age and stage of life, that you have called us to a willing service of you and to, uh, to perpetual worship of you. So may we proclaim your worth in, in all that we do, Lord. Lord, we think of the many who are sick among us as well uh, and not able to be here, some who are getting better. Lord, we thank you that so far people uh, have been generally uh, well in terms of, of illness lately, and so Uh, Whether it be of COVID or not, Lord, we pray that you would uh, keep us safe uh, and gather us back together quickly, especially as we're separated. Lord, this morning we want to pray for uh, First Baptist Church in Colfax, Lord, as as they are gathered to worship you, to hear the preaching of the word. Uh, Lord, as uh, as there's some quarantine going on there and things are are a little different for them this morning, we pray that you would give them great flexibility, uh, a great delight 
in your word as we ask of us as well. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us and, and them to be clear in our witness and bold in our evangelism and telling people of what you have done for us. Lord, we want to pray also this morning for the Christian Aid Center. Lord, we thank you for the praises that they have shared with us of what you're doing in the hearts of people there. Uh, we thank you that there is a peace uh, present that is obviously from you. We thank you that during COVID you have uh, given them the resources they need to sustain the ministry that you have given them. We thank you for all of that, Lord. We pray uh, that you would, um, uh, with, we, we pray for uh, these requests that they have shared with us, Lord, that you would uh, help them to uh, be able to teach well parenting skills to, uh, particularly to mothers who may have children on the women's side. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would work faithfulness in the hearts of the men on the men's side who may have families that they might love and serve and lead their families well. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who come into various programs and maybe are in varying stages of their Lord. We pray that you would, uh, would make the gospel clear, that people would believe in you, would trust you, would be plugged into churches. Lord, and we pray for unity among the staff as well as they serve uh, here in the Walla Walla Valley. Lord, give us insight and understanding into your word. Let it sound forth from us clearly into the world. May people be saved as a result. Give us open eyes to see the truth of your word and give us soft hearts to obey it, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not been with us the last couple of weeks to look at the book of Daniel, uh, those sermons are online and there's a lot of history and context there. I will try and catch you up. The book of Daniel, as we look at the whole of chapter one this morning, starts with crisis. In fact, there are two crises in Daniel's life that the book opens up to. There is first national crisis. Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as its king has come in to Judah. The, the Babylonians have been staved off for years by God's blessing, maybe even uh, centuries, more than a century for sure. And now, because of their sin and disobedience, God has allowed this nation to come in and to conquer it and to, uh, to capture some of the people and to haul uh, articles from the temple back to Babylon, the capital city of the kingdom, and to be placed in the house of worship of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And Jerusalem is destroyed. There is national crisis at the open of the book of Daniel. But there is also personal crisis at the book of Daniel, where in all of these events, he is taken captive, hauled off to a land that is not his home, and put in service of the king. I think we must ask this morning, can anyone identify? Maybe it's national crisis. Maybe that's what you perceive to be going on around us. Maybe it is what's going on around us. Or maybe it's personal crisis. If, if you can identify, the message of Daniel is for you. Let me remind you that uh, the text that I read this morning is probably one of the most essentially literal texts I've ever read. But, uh, but the Lord's name, Yahweh, uh, if it appears in this chapter, I don't recall, is there. So if, if they read a little different, that's okay. Let's work through, and I'll supply some context as we do chapter 1 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now let me just stop even right there and say this puts us about 605 BC. 
Um, I, I'm probably not going to spend a bunch of time on why the dates in Daniel prove to be problematic for, for some, even though they should not be. Uh, if, that is, uh, if, if you're aware of that and you would like to understand that, come see me individually, but the dates in the book of Daniel are not wrong. Uh, let's keep going. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, that is back to Babylon. It probably should not be lost on us that these articles used in worship for, uh, for, for I mean, for, in the temple for God are being taken back to the land of Shinar, to Babylon, to the place where the Tower of Babel and extreme defiance of God was, uh, was originally, I mean, it's not the first rebellion against God, but certainly there was extreme rebellion against God there at Babel. And now, even the articles of worship are being taken back to the house of his God. I love the contrast here, because if we look at this in Hebrew, and this opening part is in Hebrew, there is this great contrast between his God that is Nebuchadnezzar's God, and the God. There's not a distinction here between Nebuchadnezzar's God and Daniel's God. There is only uh, his God, which is obviously not a God, and the God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king said to Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, Yours, uh, your translation there might read, eunuch, and if it, if it does, I believe the reason for this, as I've studied this text, um, officials is probably the better rendering. The word eunuch uh, has a certain connotation in our thinking, but, but the word itself uh, could, in the Hebrew mind, refer to what we might think of as a eunuch, but it also became a general word for a servant. And we even see within the context of Scripture, examples like like Potiphar, where Joseph went to serve, though he had a wife and a household and a family, is called in Hebrew a eunuch. It doesn't seem likely, based upon the following verses, uh, and, and based upon the fact that Dan, there's no indication in Daniel that he ever worked with uh, the court of women in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, that he is uh, probably here just a chief official, as is Daniel. So the king said to Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal seed and of the nobles. This is probably where Daniel fits because we find he was from the line of Judah. Youths. It's an important word there. Because as we understand youths in this Hebrew culture and this word here, we're probably looking at Daniel somewhere in his mid-teens. As a 15-year-old this is the crisis that Daniel faces. Uh, the, the king wants Ashpenaz to bring some youths in whom was no defect, who were good in appearance, showing insight in every branch of wisdom, being thoroughly knowledgeable and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to stand in the king's palace. And he said for him to teach them the literature and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to stand before the king. Now from among 
Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials set names for them. And for Daniel, he set the name Belteshazzar, for Hananiah, Shadrach, for Mishael, Meshach, and for Azariah, Abednego. Now, if you want to know how to keep these names straight, here's a little trick I have. Now, of course, Daniel prefers to keep his Hebrew name, which, is, which means God, God is my judge, and rejects this Aramaic name, Belteshazzar, which is Bel, the, the god of the Babylonians. Uh, uh, may God protect or, or, or Bel or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it is in Aramaic. But, but Daniel rejects this name that is connected to the god of the Babylonians and prefers to keep his name, God is my judge. But if we notice in their names, there's some similarities. Shadrach has an H in it, as does Hananiah. Meshach starts with an M, as does Mishael, and Abednego starts with an A, as does Azariah. So that's just how I keep these straight in my mind. So these four youths from the tribe of Judah get new names. They get new educations. They get new locations. They get new work. But Daniel, that is, God is my judge, set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel loving kindness and compassion before the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, I don't like this plan, Daniel. This is going to be a little disappointment to our Seventh-day Adventist neighbors who think that this is the proper diet. The point in Daniel is not that this was a good diet, but that it was not a good diet. And this, this uh, official is afraid that if he does not give them the food that the king commanded and they don't look as good as the king wants them to look, that it will cost him his life. That might give us some insight into how Nebuchadnezzar ruled. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed before you in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that their appearance was better and that they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and insight in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king has spoken of for bringing them in, the commander of the officials brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them. And out of them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they stood in service before the king. 
And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king sought from them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his kingdom. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. The first year of Cyrus the king, of course, takes us to the end of these six chapters that we're going to look at when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Uh, We are not usually very familiar with this. That's about an additional 65 years from here. So Daniel's thrown into the lion's den and won't get there in weeks to come at about 80 years of age. Daniel's personal crisis and national crisis were not resolved quickly. They, They spanned his whole life. In fact, we don't know where Daniel ended up. We don't know if he ever came back to Judah. But here we are with Daniel, national crisis. Judah is overthrown, personal crisis, he's taken into captivity, now he's, he's asked to, to do some things he doesn't want to do, and he, he defies. Well, I want us to see, as we're looking in this, uh, in this book today, I want us to see this fourfold formula for faithfulness. And that's really what we're trying to see in the book of Daniel. How do we live faithfully in a land that is so different than the kingdom that we are to be a part of? How are we to live faithfully in a world that seems to be far off from God's design and desire and plan? I'm going to have to ask your forgiveness here early because maybe I stretched too hard to alliterate the points today, but... Uh, what can I say? I'm a Baptist preacher, so uh, we went with it. Number one in this fourfold formula for faithfulness build bright lines beforehand. Build bright lines beforehand. Bright lines are, it's, it's a legal term, it's a legal test. And, and a bright line is a boundary that cannot be crossed. It is a boundary that cannot be stepped over. It it is a rule that that cannot be broken. And here in chapter 1, particularly in verse 8, we see that Daniel finally hits his bright line. He's been asked to do too much. The requests have gone too far. And so when presented with the choice food of the king, he objects. With all that happened to Daniel... Why is this the point at which he says, I've had enough? I think part of the reason is we see that that much of what goes on here happens to Daniel, not not because of Daniel. When, when, When the nation of Judah falls, when Jerusalem, its capital city, is destroyed, when he is hauled off into captivity, these are things that that happen to him. And then he's asked to do some, thir- some things. He's asked to learn the language of the people. There's, there's nothing immoral about learning another language. He's asked to learn the history of Babylon. There's nothing immoral about, part, uh, about um, learning their history either. Why is it that when food comes in, all of a sudden he says, I can't go there? Well, there's probably one of two possibilities One is that maybe the food being given to him is unclean, according to the Jewish diet. There's no indication of that in the text, and while that's possible, that does not seem to be what is going on here. 
What seems to be going on to me here is that the king, who, who is now seeing his gods as stronger than the god of Judah, and, and hauling off the people, hauling off the temple uh, uh, articles, hauling off all of this stuff back to Israel, or I mean back to Babylon from Judah, sees his god as more powerful. And then they give him a name related to their god, Bel being similar to Baal or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. I, I think what's going on here is probably this food was associated with the worship of those gods. And maybe it was even seen that, that it was the gods who, by giving them this food, made them strong. I don't think it really matters whether it's that this food defies God's dietary laws or whether this food was used in, in idolatrous pagan worship. Either way, Daniel is now being asked to participate in something in defiance of God. And at this point, he says, that's enough. I, I can't do it. The line, this, this is the line, I will go no further. And he refuses to cross that line. Young men and women, 15, 16 years of age, have you drawn your lines? Have you said, this is as far as I will go and I will go no further? Are they so bright in your mind that were the king to ask you to defy them, you would say, I'm sorry, but I cannot. Because if you wait till the moment comes where you're asked to defy God, to draw those lines, it'll be too late. You have to build your bright lines beforehand. Parents, are you investing in your children before they get to their bright lines? Or are you simply thinking that when they get there, we'll respond? We've got time. Or are you investing in godliness in your children now? Because your children, very, very soon when they leave your house, they're going to be going to a new location with a new kingdom to learn a new language and a new education. And if you have not taught them before they leave about who God is and what he commands, and why all of his commands are for our good, it'll be too late once they're there. Except by divine intervention, and of course, our children's salvation is always a matter of divine intervention. It reminds me of Jonathan Edwards, who by the time he was about 17 or 18 years old, penned his 70 resolutions. If you've not seen the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, look them up. As an 18-year-old, he pens 70 resolutions. Each one starts with the word resolved and, and then follows with instructions of how he wants to live. And one of his resolutions was that he would revisit these resolutions weekly. And, and, and he was resolved from the time he was 18, and he lived by these resolutions for the rest of his life. We can't wait to invest. We are in the middle of a cultural revolution. And the church is no longer uh, really uh, culturally exempted from participation anymore. The culture that we live in not only demands 
that we don't speak against it but, or, or even just don't accept it, but that we participate in it. And if you don't participate in what the culture demands, you very well might be cut off. Have you drawn your lines? Daniel knew where his boundaries were, and so must we. The second part of our fourfold formula for faithfulness is the peaceful pursuit of principles. The peaceful pursuit of our principles. Notice that when Daniel is asked to do something he he does not do, he proposes a peaceful solution. The king's afraid, or I mean the official is afraid of the king. He's afraid he's going to, to die. Daniel doesn't throw a big fit. He doesn't run a picket line. He doesn't demand that the whole program of the king's servant building be be accommodated to him. He simply sticks by his own principles and he presents peaceful solutions so that he doesn't have to participate in, in what he believes to be wrong. He doesn't rail against others. He doesn't demand the culture adapt to him. I don't want to give the impression that it's wrong to peacefully employ the the means built into our culture to to stand against it, because there are means built into our culture to stand against it, and it's okay to employ those. But I I think a little, well, maybe not a little bit, a lot today, I think Christians seem to think that that by their their obstinate rebellion and their obnoxious uh, Uh, rejection of cultural norms that we're going to get somewhere. But one of the things we see in Daniel is he, he never does anything different. He just, he just plots this steady course of faithfulness and he calmly and peacefully presents solutions to his problems. Do you use social media to be obnoxious to prove others wrong and make them look like fools? Or do you simply pursue peaceful godliness? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, uh, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you, do you pray that our officials, that our elected officials at any level, that the result of their election would be that you can live a quiet, peaceful, dignified life? Or do you seek ways to be boisterous and obnoxious when things don't go your way? We must live by the peaceful pursuit of our principles. Thirdly, the third principle in our formula for faithfulness is divine dependence in the difficult. Divine dependence in the difficult. While the other three points, the the one we have coming up and the two that I've already mentioned, are examples to be followed, this is the point of Daniel chapter 1. If you hear nothing else I say today, this is the point to pay attention to. 
This is what the text is asking us to understand. We see great examples in Daniel to follow. We've looked at two of them. We're going to see one more. But this is what Daniel 1 is all about. That when the circumstances are difficult, when life is hard, we depend upon God. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel loving kindness and compassion. Verse 17, and as for these youths, God gave them knowledge and insight. If you hear nothing else from me today, hear this. God is in control of everything that happens here. Judah lost this battle because God wanted them to. The temple and Jerusalem was destroyed because God gave Judah into the hand of of their enemies. And and by the way, God had warned them of this. Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk had all prophesied to the nation of, of Judah from God that this was coming. None of this caught off guard. All of this happened because God was in control. Do you have a category for that in your thinking? Do you believe that? When two years later, COVID rages on, is it because God's in control? Is it an opportunity for obnoxious rebellion or for peaceful living? When your spouse or your child dies, When you're diagnosed with cancer, do you believe God is in control? Or is your view of God one like, a bit like a chess game? All right, the world took its turn, here's COVID, and now God's sitting up there for two years going, what's my next move? How do I respond to this? In Daniel, God is never responding He is always initiating. He is always causing. Now, I want to be very, very careful here because James is clear that God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. God doesn't cause evil. But but even the most evil of things, when, when they happen, they happen because God is in control and because he allows them. Do you have a category in your thinking for these things? Can you you help your your children understand this? Maybe I need to preach a sermon on it, but if your go-to answer is, oh, God just didn't want robots, so he lets us do evil, you need a better answer. It's not a biblical answer, and it's not a sufficient answer. I wish Ravi Zacharias wouldn't have spent years giving us that answer. Because the answer is that without, the, without evil in the world, without sin, without God's divine and sovereign permission of it, there is no cross. How do you have the cross without sin? And without the cross and without sin, how do you understand that God is just and angry? And merciful and gracious 
and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The cross is not God's plan B. It is not his chest move after Adam and Eve sinned. No, it's plan A. Titus 1 is, is clear, 1-1 one, one, is clear that God promised salvation before the ages began. It's all part of his plan. Do you have a category for that in the good and in the evil? If not, I'd love to help you have one. We must depend upon God and trust his goodness and his control, even when things are difficult. And fourthly, our fourth principle, this again comes from the example of Daniel and his friends. We must embody excellence in everything. We must embody excellence in everything. Yes, verse 17 tells us that it was God that gave them knowledge and insight. However, we shouldn't think that's without Daniel's effort. Daniel put effort into faithfulness in terms of food. He, he sought, despite what he ate and ate differently than others, to be strong, to be fit, to be smart, to be intelligent. He put effort into learning the language and learning the history. Yes, it was God who gave him success in those things, but he didn't drag Daniel along kicking and screaming. Daniel, no doubt, put effort in as well. There's so many similarities here, by the way, to the story of Joseph. Right? Both Joseph and Daniel get hauled off into a foreign land. Both of them are given the ability to interpret dreams. Both of them are put into the employment of the king. Both of them excel in everything that they touch. And both of them are quick to point everyone to look at the glory and majesty of God. Both of them worked hard to, to, to excel as well. I wonder, would Daniel have had the witness he had if he was a B student? Would he have had the, the influence he had in the culture if he were just mediocre? Do you embody excellence in everything? This is a convicting thought. At least for me it is, because the decisive answer in my life is no. But it still begs the questions. Do you give your best to your spouse? Do you give your best to your kids? Do you give your best at work? Do you give your best to the church? Notice I'm not asking if you give everything to each one. But do you give your best when you're there? In closing, there's something else we need to see here that is more important than all of this. Daniel was exiled according to God's sovereignty. He left his home and went to a place that, that was not his land. And from Genesis 3, we're exiles too. Our sin has exiled us from the glory and majesty and relationship with God. But the story doesn't end there. Because by God's sovereignty, Christ exiled himself 
He exiled himself from heaven according to the sovereignty and plan of God to come and live in exile with us. And though he didn't deserve it and never committed any sin that would exile him, he experienced life in the same way that we do, as one exiled by sin. In exile, Daniel was faithfully obedient to God. And in exile, Christ was faithfully obedient to God in everything. But where Daniel was spared by God's sovereignty, and where by faith in Christ we are spared from God's sovereignty, the great contrast is that Daniel, who didn't deserve this, and us who don't deserve eternal life, get it, while Christ, who was deserving of everything and not deserving of exile, exiled himself so that he might not be spared. So that he might die in our place. So that we might be brought out of our exile in sin, out of the garden, and brought back into fellowship and relationship with God for eternity. Sin exiled Adam and Eve and you and me from God's presence. But Christ, Christ has flipped that around so that we are now no longer belonging to this world, but we are exiles here awaiting the kingdom to which we do belong. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are exiles of the dispersion. Now, this is certainly an earthly level exile in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They're exiles because God allowed them to be. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We were exiles from God, but in Christ we become exiles in the world and children of God. Why? Because as we see here, we have been sprinkled clean by his blood. We have been sprinkled clean by his death through faith that he came into exile to provide for us. How do we, how do we respond? With obedience. The sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've been sprinkled with his blood. Believers, do you live like exiles? Do you live like this world is your home? Or like it is a land away from home? And for all of us, I was tempted to ask this question of just those of you who may be here today who have not trusted Christ as your Savior. But the question is really before all of us. Are you trusting Today, in the blood of Christ, to bring you out of your exile to sin and into the kingdom of God? Or are you trusting yourself? God is in control. God is sovereign. God is faithful. Christ was exiled that we might be brought near. He died that we might live. We must respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, let us live lives like this. Let us live obedient lives to you as we're sanctified by your spirit. Lord, we want to learn from the example of Daniel. 
We want to we set our lines ahead of time. We want to pursue peaceful solutions when we're asked to compromise. We want to embody excellence in everything that we do. But really, Lord, we want to rest in your sovereignty. We want to trust that you are in control of all things. Lord, would you remind us today that, that when there is crisis, whether it's national or personal, that you are in control. And despite the evil that happens around us, you are good. And you do good. Lord, may we live obedient lives that are not an attempt to earn salvation, but that flow out of the salvation that you have provided for us in Christ. Lord, let our daily walk be a walk of trust in you. And Lord, if there be any among us who, who are still trusting in themselves, their own goodness, who think there's no sin to reconcile between them and you, would you convict them of that sin? Would you remind them that, that all of us except Christ have violated your law, but that he lived perfectly and died for us? When we trust him and not ourselves, you give us his righteousness. You accept his death as our death. And you offer us the eternal life with you that he has promised. May we trust that and preach that to ourselves daily and not just to ourselves, to the world around us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.